Uh, last Wednesday, or this Wednesday just gone, I had a dream. And uh, in my dream, I was watching one of the latest Star Wars films. And um, I've made this confession before, I've never seen a single Star Wars movie in my life, and I genuinely don't feel like I've missed out in any way, shape, or form. Apologies if that is highly kind of offensive to some people in the room. But in this dream, I was watching one of the recent Star Wars films, and the reality was, because I hadn't seen any of the earlier films, it kind of made sort of sense, but what I was very aware of, that a whole load of it went right over the top of my head. I just, you know, I got it on one level, but I didn't get it to the level that other people who would have seen uh, all of the other Star Wars films, uh, particularly the geeks who watch them over and over again and research online and have those conversations that only Star Wars fans can have about, you know, kind of, oh, that means this and this means that. And, uh, and I was just very aware that a lot of it just passed me by because uh, I didn't know the story leading up to the point that this new film started. Often, that is our experience with the Bible, or can be our experience with the Bible. If we take a chunk of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, particularly the passage we're looking at today, and we read it, we might get it on one level. But if we haven't kind of looked deeply into some of the history and the context and what has happened in the story up to this point, we might get it on one level, but we might miss out on what is there at a deeper level. The reality was is that Jesus was a Jew. He was completely informed by his Jewish um, kind of culture and history and people. And a lot of what he says, um, just to the Jews, they would have known quite a bit more than we, most of us in this room, probably don't have a Jewish heritage. Um, But to those of us who don't, we might be in danger of missing some things that are at that deeper level. So today, um, we are looking at the next story in our Passion Week series. Jenny kicked us off last week brilliantly, just looking at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And uh, today, we get to this rather odd story where Jesus curses a fig tree he actually speaks to a fig tree, which I always think, if you're one of these people who goes and talks to your plants, you've got a hero in Jesus here, although he wasn't as kind to this tree as maybe you might be to your plants. And, uh, and then he goes into the temple, uh, the kind of heart of Jewish worship, and, uh, and he overturns some tables and some chairs and drives some people out of there. It actually gets quite angry. And, uh, and, and so these are the, the events that we're talking about. But to fully understand them, or to give some context, I want us to rewind quite a long way. In fact, all the way back to Genesis. And uh, we're going to pick up what happens in Genesis 12. And uh, I should have a little slide here, Tineka, if you can put this up. Um, I don't know if you can see that from where you are. You might need binoculars. Um, But what my aim to do here was just, I'll leave this at the top of the screen when we're looking at Bible passages, so that hopefully there's a little bit of a timeline, because we're going to skip through the Old Testament and referring back to things, because that's what Jesus does. In this passage, he quotes uh, from a couple of places and does things that directly relate to events or stories or teaching in the Old Testament. And it might just help us just to kind of get our heads around um, kind of the whole of the context of it. Okay, so we're rewinding to Genesis 12, where God um, does a slightly strange thing, in my opinion. If I was God, I'm not sure I would do this, but 
we are all really blessed by the fact that I am not God and God is God. Um, so I'm not going to argue with him. Um, but he decides, he has created this world and he wants, God's heart is for the whole world. And his way of blessing the whole world is actually to choose a tribe of people. It initially starts with uh, one man and his wife, Abraham, Abraham, who becomes Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Uh, these two people God chooses and he makes a covenant with them, a promise, a, a kind of relational promise where he says, I'll do this and you do this. And he's chosen this, this group of people who he wants to involve in working his purposes out. So we're going to read from verse 1, uh, Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. You see, right at the heart, of this story of God choosing a group of people, a, um, a, a tribe of people and saying, I, I want to call you my own. I want to have a relationship with you. At the heart of it is relationship. But, but God's heart actually comes through here. Um, his heart is that all families on earth will be blessed through you. He wants Abraham, we often talk about him being blessed, to be a blessing to other people. God, even though he's choosing one group of people, his heart, his heartbeat through it all is to say all families on earth will be blessed through you. God's heart is broad and it is wide. Now, as part of this covenant, there will be a recurring theme that comes up. And in some ways, it's a little bit of a a kind of barometer, a little bit of a, of, a, of a test for God's people Israel to see how well they will be, they are actually doing at being a blessing to all nations, a, 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 all families being blessed through them. And, uh, and we read in, in many occasions, but I want to pull out the one in Deuteronomy 24. And, uh, and this is God's instruction to them. He's gathered a group of people he is trying to teach them his ways and his heart. And he says this, uh, Deuteronomy 24, start at verse 17. True justice must be given to foreigners living among you and to orphans. And you must never accept a widow's garment as security for her debt. Always remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from your slavery. That is why I have given you this command. When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for who? For the foreigners, the orphans, and widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for who? For the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. This is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. God's heart for his people to, to bless all nations and all people will have a really practical outworking. And that will be that they will look after and include the 
widows and orphans and foreigners who were living amongst them. These people were the people who in their society at the time were the most vulnerable people in their society, often the poorest and the neediest, the people who didn't have the security of husbands or parents or the fact that they were part of God's people by their, uh, their kind of blood lineage. These were really vulnerable people. And God says, look, you need to look out for these people. And he comes back to it time and time again. And actually, God's people throughout the Old Testament are judged on how they are doing with these three groups of people. Nelson Mandela, he, he's actually famous for saying, he said, there is no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. That, you know, that there's, a, there's a thing there about the vulnerable people in society. How a society treats them is actually a, a demonstration of the true soul and heart of a group of people. God even commanded his people to include widows and orphans and foreigners in their festivals, in their celebrations, in the cultural life of their nation. In the old sacrificial system where God's people would bring animals to be sacrificed as worship to God, if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could actually buy two doves and, uh, and sacrifice those instead. So there was provision made for poor people within the, the worship and sacrifice system. Remember that bit about the doves because we'll come back to that when Jesus is speaking a little bit later. But doves were the sacrifice of the poor. Now once the people had settled in the land, uh, God had them build a temple, a place where they could worship and bring sacrifices. On the timeline, this was around Solomon, uh, kind of around 957 BC before Jesus, um, was the temple was finished. And the temple was really significant in the nation. Up to this point, um, you know, various points, they'd been quite nomadic. They had had a, a tabernacle for worshipping, a tent-like structure where they had worshipped God. But they now had this permanent building, and it was, it was incredible, this temple. It was beautiful. It was ornate. And it, it was really part of their national identity. Uh, the Jews took huge amount of pride in this temple and what it meant for them. And God, throughout kind of history, you see this, but I want to pull out what Isaiah says. God had a big, expansive vision for this temple. It harks back to Abraham's call to, to be, uh, for all families, all people on earth to be blessed through him. Uh, Isaiah, who is preaching, you'll see him on the timeline somewhere along there, about 700 BC. He was a prophet, and God used him to bring this message to his people. Uh, we're going to read the first verses of uh, Isaiah chapter 56. This is what the Lord says, Be just and fair to all. Do what is right and good, for I am coming soon to rescue you and to display my righteousness among you. Blessed are all those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honour my Sabbath days of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. Now, a really interesting bit. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be part of his people. And don't let the eunuchs say, I am a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says. I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy, who 
who choose not to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one and it will never disappear. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love him, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill uh, them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then the key line that Jesus will refer to a little bit later, because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. Isaiah has captured God's heart and he's communicating God's heart to the people that God actually where, where Israel might be tempted to think God is just about us where Israel might be tempted to think we're the special ones Isaiah is saying, no, God's heart is for the foreigners as well. Obviously, there is a thing that foreigners might be tempted to say, because I'm not Jewish by, you know, by kind of ancestry, I might not be kind of in- included or allowed in. I might be never allowed, be allowed to be part of God's people. And Isaiah says, don't let that happen. Don't let foreigners who've committed themselves to God, ultimately it's about a heart thing. If these people are wanting a relationship with God, then don't kind of allow, don't allow them to think, no, I can't be part of this thing. His whole heart here in those last verses, God's heart, is that others besides his people Israel will be included and swept up into God's plans and into his family. And he, his prayer is that the temple at the heart of this is my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's vision for his temple is that all people would be able to come there and worship him. Around a similar time to, our, to when Isaiah was bringing this message, you have a prophet called Jeremiah. And, uh, and God tells this prophet, Jeremiah, to go and stand at the entrance um, to the temple. So he's going to bring this message actually standing at the very entrance to the temple. And, uh, and we're going to pick this up from Isaiah 7, verse 3. Again, this is that Jesus will refer back to this. And uh, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety, simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if, there's a key bit again, recognize the theme. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans and widows. Only if you stop your murdering and only if you stop harming yourselves by worshipping idols. Then I will let you stay in the land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie and burn incest to Baal and all those other new gods of yours? Then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves. Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
the, the people of God had fallen into a trap here where they are, they are basically doing whatever the heck they want. That's a pretty accurate description, I would suggest, of that list of things that they're up to. They're doing whatever they feel like doing and then retreating to the temple. And they're saying, it's okay, God's never going to do anything or allow anything bad to happen to us because we've got the temple. This is where God lives. He's on our side. He's, he, you know, we're safe here. And they're even chanting that, Jeremiah says. They retreat after doing all of this evil, including exploiting foreigners widows and orphans and then they retreat to the temple and think that stuff doesn't matter what matters is we've got the temple and Isaiah his his kind of charge to them from God is don't you admit that this temple which bears my name has become what a den of thieves the, um, the, there is a warning of kind of coming judgment that happens um, alongside this, that actually, you know, the people won't be able to stay in the land that God has given them if they carry on doing this. But the people don't listen. They eventually get conquered, and many of them are kind of hauled off to be slaves in another land. The temple is actually destroyed in about 587, 586 at BC, this is the first temple, and uh, because they hadn't listened to God, and they were treating the temple and God a bit like a kind of trinket God. It's kind of you know we'll just do what we want, but we we've got you on our side, so everything is okay. They had abandoned the covenant that God had made with them, and uh, and so the temple is destroyed, and we come through a period of history that we actually looked at last year. If you remember, we're looking at the re- we looked at return, rebuild, and restore. We had a series uh, looking at a bunch of people who were involved in heading back from this exile that the people were in, where they'd been carried off to be slaves, and they went back and rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, Zerubbabel. And um, he is instrumental in rebuilding the temple and completes that in 515. BC, and, uh, and they have a temple back. God's people have a temple back. Eventually, the people come back as well um, in droves. This one isn't as grand as the original one, uh, but at least they have a temple, and, um, and it's been rebuilt. Now, alongside this, just another bit of kind of context. I know this is feeling like I'm just firing you with Old Testament stuff. It will all come together in the end through Jesus. And uh, alongside this, there is a, a, there seems to be a saying in Israel. It's a really strange one, but, um, but, but it's a saying that goes, it's based from 2 Samuel 5, where um, David conquers Jerusalem for the first time. The Jebusites are living there, and he conquers this place, and there's this weird little interaction um, where they insult him, he insults them, and there's a bit of to and fro, and, and it says, this is where the saying came from, the blind and lame may not enter the house. And this seems to have become then a thing. It even says in your Bible, it probably says um, the meaning of this saying is not clear. And um, I love that the Bible admits to that. And, uh, and so there's this mystery around it, but it somehow has been used to kind of exclude the blind and lame from the worship life of, uh, of, of, of the temple. And it's been used to kind of stop blind and lame people coming and, and having full participation of worship and sacrifice in the temple. Now, we're nearly at Jesus. Stick with me. By the time Jesus comes along, that same second temple that Zerubbabel had built about 500 years earlier or so, uh, that is still around, but it had been recently extended 
by King Herod. And, uh, and so it was, it was a little bit kind of bigger. There was a, a much bigger kind of temple area and outer court. And a really recent development, just one month before Jesus arrives, and, uh, and we have these events of Passion Week that we're looking at, the high priest, the guy at the very top of the Jewish religious authorities kind of structure, this guy Caiaphas had made a decision uh, that actually the people who were selling animals to be sacrificed and the people who were um, changing money into the right currency for people to then purchase these animals for sacrifice, Caiaphas had made the decision to move these people who would be doing these, offering these services to worshippers. He had made the decision to move them into the temple itself, into the kind of outer court of the temple. Prior to that, it had been outside of the temple, potentially about half a mile away uh, on the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and, and he had uh, instigated this, and it was actually a really profitable trade for the religious authorities, because they would charge interest on, um, or not interest, they would charge commission when changing money for foreigners into the temple coinage, and then they would charge ridiculous prices for kind of blemish-free animals that were to be sacrificed in the temple. And they've now brought it kind of in-house into the temple. It was a politically, actually, quite a contentious issue in that season. And about a month after this decision was made, along comes Jesus, and we finally arrived at what happens in Mark 11 during Passion Week. Okay, so here's what happens. Let's uh, start reading it through together, and I'll kind of comment as we go along. So Mark 11, starting at verse 12. Uh, The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. It's a great statement, opening statement. Jesus was hungry. Excellent, we all get hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. Uh, But there were only leaves there because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard heard him say it. An interesting little exchange between Jesus and a tree. And uh, now, at this time of year, Mark even acknowledges it. It's too early in the season for there to be fruit ready for eating and ready to be picked and enjoyed by Jesus. Um, But the the real issue here that we have to recognize is that at that time of year, Jesus sees a a fig tree that is in full leaf. It's got all the potential of, of bearing fruit. You know, full leaf means it can absorb sunlight, it can then put that energy into producing fruit. But as Jesus gets close up to it, he doesn't find any figs. There would have been or should have been on a a tree in that season uh, with full leaf, early figs, unripe, just the kind of start of a fig. It would have been obvious to see if any fruit would have been able to be enjoyed from that tree later in the season at this point of the year by early figs being present amongst the leaves. But Jesus gets to it, and he doesn't see any. And so he says to it, may no one ever eat the fruit again. What an odd thing to say. Anyway, we carry on reading. 
And, uh, and we'll come back to that in a bit. Uh, from verse 15, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. And then two specific things are listed that he does. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Jesus turns over the table of the money changers. Who are the money changers exploiting and ripping off foreigners? Who is, are going to be the people who are buying doves to sacrifice in the temple? And Jesus turns their cha- chairs over. It's the poor people who wouldn't be able to afford some of the other sacrifices. We'll tie that in, but you might be able to hit, see a little hint of what Jesus is really doing here. Uh, verse 17 He said to them, and here's where he he, he quotes those two passages we've looked at in the Old Testament. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus is quoting Isaiah, who had a big, expansive view of God's temple. God gave him this message that said, all kinds of people are going to be swept up in worship at the temple, including who? Widows, orphans, and aliens, the most uh, foreigners, the most vulnerable people in your society, the poor and needy. These are the people who God is saying, I, I, one day I want my worship, I want my house, my temple to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus says, that's God's heart. But then you've turned it into a den of thieves. He's echoing Jeremiah, who had brought God's word to the people at that time for doing what, among other things, exploiting the poor, uh, the, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. He says it's become a den of thieves again. Look, you've moved these services in. These these the people who you're meant to be including, you're exploiting them. We're going to flip to the narrative in Matthew. For a minute, Matthew 21, verse 14. Just a single line that Matthew adds in this narrative. Everybody would have known because they knew their Old Testaments. This saying that says, the blind and lame may not enter the house. Jesus' response is that the blind and lame came to him and he healed them. Can you see what he's doing here in this passage? Verse 18 we read, when the leading priests and teachers of the law heard that Jesus, uh, what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. The, the, the leading priests, the teachers of the law are seriously annoyed. Can you imagine who is at the heart of that? There is one man who is at the heart of that annoyance and his name is Caiaphas. About a month earlier, he has brought these, these services, the, the changing of money, the buying and selling of animals, into the temple. Jesus comes in and he whips them over and he makes a statement that this is not okay in the temple. Later on in the story, in a few weeks' time, we will come to the point where Caiaphas is instrumental in the trial, the condemnation, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And here is just another... Let's try and kind of bring all of this together, okay? In Mark, particularly in Mark's Gospel, whenever you get this thing happening, where you have... um, where you have kind of a story that is sandwiched, there's a technical term for it, but, but we'll call it a sandwich, where you have a, a, a kind of story where there's something in the middle and then something that's clearly part of the, 
you know, a story split either side of it. So here you have Jesus cursing the fig tree because there are no early figs. And then you have the story of the temple and him clearing out the temple. And then you have the, the kind of final bit of the story about the fig tree where they recognize it has withered and died. This is a kind of, in, in, in the kind of literature that the Bible was written in, this is just a really obvious sign that basically says this, these bits here either side are actually about this bit right in the middle. So what Mark is trying to tell his readers is that the thing about the fig tree is fundamentally linked to the thing about the temple. Okay, so what is this about? Well, Oh, we've got one more verse. Micah verse seven, uh, Micah chapter seven, verse one. We're going to just read this together because I think this ties the whole thing uh, together. Um, this is Micah, and uh, and he's a prophet to God's people. I think I've got him on a. I didn't. I did put him on the timeline around there. Look, seven hundred, around about seven hundred or so, and uh, and he is looking out at the corruption of God's people. He is, he is devastated about what he sees in the land of God's people and the corruption there. And he says this. He says, How miserable I am. I feel like the fruit picker after the harvest who can find nothing to eat, not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig. Now, what had Jesus failed to find on that tree that had showed so much potential, it's full of leaf. He goes looking for some figs and he can't find a single early fig. And so he curses it. And then eventually the tree, the next day, the tree is withered from the roots up. Four occasions in the Old Testament where a withered fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment. What is happening here? Jesus is looking at Israel, God's chosen people. He knows the original covenant. He knows that they had been blessed so that they could be a blessing to all nations, all people. He knows that God has called them in a really practical demonstration of this kind of blessing all nations to look after the poor and needy, the widow, the orphan and the alien, to include them in their community life, to include them in the worship and sacrifice going on at the temple. Jesus knows this stuff and he comes to God's people and he observes them and what does he find? He finds that the very people God wanted them to bless and to serve were not being included. In fact, they were being exploited for the gain of the religious authorities of the day. The religious authorities had set up the whole temple system to serve themselves and to make money and exclude the very people that God wanted to include in his covenant. Like Micah, Jesus was angry and disappointed at what he saw. He couldn't find in Israel the, the signs of fruit. He couldn't find an early fig to say, look, they're, they're onto it. They've got it. They, this is going to be fruitful. He couldn't find anything in terms of those early figs that Micah had talked about in that tree. That's what's going on at the temple. Jesus is in, enacting symbolically God's judgment 
on a tree that represents Israel, that is in full leaf, has all of the potential, it is being blessed, but it is not showing any sign of fruit. It is a sad assessment of the tree's true condition. In the grand scheme of God's story, his interactions with people on earth, this is a turning point. Israel, God's plan A at that time for the blessing of all nations, has come up short. And Jesus is declaring it in a very public way. Now, through Jesus' death and resurrection and institution of the church that we'll be coming to in the following weeks, Jesus was going to be making a new way for all the nations to be blessed where everyone could come and worship God and have a relationship with him. We are part of that now. This was just a, a really significant turning point. This is almost the, this is the end of this era of Israel being God's plan A for the blessing of the nations. And Jesus is saying that there will be a new way coming. So there are two things I want to just kind of comment on really for us. And, uh, and the first one is good news, and the second one is a bit of a challenge, I think. Uh, Mark's readers, here's the good news, Mark's readers were non-Jews. His gospel was written to uh, people who, who would have been tempted, like uh, Isaiah had kind of said, being tempted to think, I can, be never, I can never be part of God's true family. And the wonderful news to them and to us is that we're all included. This would have been such good news for Mark's readers because they would have realized, ah, yes, God's heart has been for all nations all along. And finally, it is happening. Jesus is bringing God's kind of assessment, his sad assessment of the true condition of Israel and their ability to include us. And, and that's not happened. But Jesus is now saying that a new way will come. And this era is coming to an end. For us, if anybody, whether it's your own internal voice, or whether it's other people, or whether it's the enemy speaking lies over you, if any voice has ever said that you can't be included in the plans of God, that you can't be welcomed into his family, that you're not good enough, good enough or kind enough, or well-educated enough or rich enough or you're just not the right kind of person you don't fit around here if any voice has spoken that over you it is not the voice of Jesus that's the good news of this uh, message today and this passage today the truth is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus yeah if anyone has ever spoken over you you don't fit in God's family you're not the right kind of person to be a Christian or to be part of a church. That is not the voice of God. That is not the voice of Jesus. And that is not what he wants you to hear. You can reject anybody who has ever spoken that over you. That is the good news, right? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you're included in God's plan. That is the good news, isn't it? This is the good news here, that God's plan was, was no longer going to be worked out primarily through one tribe of people. God's plan of blessing for the whole world, the whole of creation, the entirety of humanity, 
was going to come through one man instead, and that man was Jesus. And we are the beneficiaries of that today. Now, the challenge just to finish with. You see, the Jews had missed the mark. They had missed the point. They had made this whole thing to serve themselves instead of blessing the people that God wanted them to be a blessing to. He wanted them to be a light of the world, but instead they'd made the whole thing about themselves. In what ways do we or the church as a whole or us as individual believers, in what ways might we be guilty of making it all about us and setting up church and life and faith to serve us rather than the people that God has called us to be a light of the world too. That's the challenge of today's passage for us. In what ways might we, I think I've got it up there, in what ways might we have made the church all about us? It's so easy to do, isn't it? To kind of think the church is about hunkering down, the church is about you know, kind of us serving one another, and we lose sight that the entire purpose of God's new covenant with us and relationship with us is for the benefit of other people. It's often been said, hasn't it, that the church is one of the only organizations in the world that its ultimate aim is not about itself. It's about other people who are not yet part of it. That is so true, and yet it is so easy to fall into the trap. And just little ways of us making church about us, about one another, and losing sight of the fact that ultimately our mission is about reaching other people. It's about being a blessing to all people, whether they would say that they follow Jesus or not. The question is, if we are that fig tree, have we got nice of, lots of nice leaves? Are, are we putting on a good show that shows huge potential, but ultimately we are lacking fruit? That's the challenge of this story for us. I want to throw out a few practical challenges, questions for us. I'm not going to answer them. They're for us to go away and dwell on. Are we willing to make room for new people in our midst as a church? Are we willing to talk to the newcomers who attend here week in, week out, we see new faces? Are we willing to say, actually, I'm not going to prioritize a conversation with, with a friend who's been here for years. I'm going to make it a priority to include people who are on the fringes coming into church. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? Am I willing to do church differently? Am I willing to make church not about my own preferences and what I like out of a worship service or out of a church in recognition that ultimately church needs to be kind of shaped around its mission? Church needs to be shaped around who is it we're trying to reach here and how do we do church in a way that sees people drawn in to, the, to a life of faith with him? Are we willing? That will be uncomfortable at times. That will mean doing things and experiencing church in a way that might not be our own preference. But do we want to make church all about us? Or do we want to make church ultimately about the people we are trying to reach? And dare I even say it, would we ever be willing to commission a group of people to go off and to start another congregation somewhere else in this city to reach unreached people? Would we be willing to go through the uncomfortable kind of process because we might recognize that ultimately church is not about us. It's about the people out there who don't yet know Jesus, who God's heart has always been for, right? (laughs) God's heart. 
God's heart has always been for the outsider, for the person who doesn't know him yet. God's heart is for us, absolutely. But he never wants us to fall into the trap of thinking that church needs to be about us and him. Yes, it does. But ultimately, above and beyond that, church needs to be shaped around the people who we are trying to reach with the good news because we believe that that good news is going to transform their lives. And God's heart from the start, from that very first covenant with Abraham, has been that all nations would be blessed by his covenant relationship with his people. That's the same today. It's as true today as it has ever been, right? That is why God has chosen us. We've got a relationship with him so that we might be a blessing to all people, to those who don't yet know him. So it's a challenge to us, isn't it? It's good news because we were once those people who weren't included, who weren't part of God's family, who were lost, who didn't know him. It's good news for us, but it's also a challenge to us to make sure that church never becomes about solely serving us and our relationship with God. It has to be about more than that, doesn't it? And that is the challenge of today's you know, kind of message and that passage that Jesus was bringing to the people back then, and I believe he is asking us here today. Do we, do we want to be a, tr- a church that looks great from a distance and has loads of nice leaf- leaves in the right season, or do we want to be a fruitful church that actually you know, demonstrates the fruit that Jesus wants from his people, where we're looking after the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, where we're looking after the most needy in society and where we're making room for everyone, for God's new temple, the church on earth, to be a house for all nations. That's the challenge, isn't it? Why don't we have the musicians back up? I'm just going to pray and uh, and then we'll spend some time worshipping God together. Father, we thank you that we're included. (laughs) We thank you so much that you chose to send Jesus into the world. That now, not through one nation would all the world be blessed. Not through one flawed nation of imperfect people would the world be blessed. But by one man, Jesus. A new way would be given so that all people could come to you. God, we, have, we are the beneficiaries of that. We are the non-Jews who have been welcomed into your family and who Jesus kind of put, put an end to that era and started a new one with a new covenant. We're part of that and we're so grateful, God. We're so grateful that your heart is big enough for each and every single one of us here to know you, to love you, to have a relationship with you, to enter into that new covenant, that new relationship of promise with you. But God, we also acknowledge, we acknowledge that there's a challenge to us as a church because ultimately, God, in our, in our human frailty, we are selfish people and it is loads easier to make church about us, a nice, cosy family where we love one another, where we serve one another, where we outwork our relationship with you. But God, it's so easy to lose sight of the mission that you have given us. It's so easy to lose sight of the truth that your heart is still to bless all people. That the neighbours on our street, the colleagues at work, the fellow parents at the school gate, 
that those who don't know you, your heart is, is beating and bursting to know those people and for them to know you intimately, for those people to come into a, a loving relationship with you. God, that's still your beating heart today. And we don't want to be the people who miss that, who abandon that for a, for a kind of nice, cozy religiosity like the temple authorities had done who'd made it all about them. God, we don't want to be that kind of people. We want to be a church who is always striving to reach the unreached, to, to treat well the most vulnerable in our society, to look after the poor and needy, to serve them. And ultimately, God, we want our church here to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. God, help us to make sure we're not excluding people. We're not holding people at arm's length. We're not exploiting the very people you've called us to serve. Help us to always make room. Help us to always choose discomfort for the sake of people out there who don't yet know you. God, we love you. <laughs> we love that you love the church. We know that you never come in condemnation, but you're always calling us deeper into your plans and purposes. You're always challenging us to reach higher and further into your plans, into your heart. And God, we want our heartbeat to mirror your heartbeat. We want to have a heart for those who don't yet know you. So would you continue to grow that in us as a church father? Amen.